0: Three teenage boys were free on a Saturday morning, and they lived outside of Utah in a suburb. And so they jumped on their ATVs and they decided to ride out into the uh, mountainsides and uh, just spend a day riding. And uh, All of us, I think, were teenagers at one time, and you kind of know how this works. They stopped at the edge of a cliff, and it was like, I bet you can't. You've been there, right? You know, where someone says, I bet you can't jump out the top of a pack house," or, you know, I've, I've been guilty of that. Or, I bet you can't climb this and then jump off. And so, this day, two of the boys, challenged one of the other boys and said I bet you can't climb the side of this cliff and he took the challenge so he began to climb the side of a cliff grabbing into the rock and as he was climbing up he realized that well you know this may not have been a good idea the rocks are kind of loose he put his hands in some places where you know, some insects or ants were. He got a few bites. As he was climbing, some dirt began to shift and his feet began to slide and he really thought this was not a good idea. There was a a ledge that was a little ways up, um, maybe about halfway on the the cliff as he was climbing. And so he decided to stop there. And he was trying to make a decision of whether he was going to continue up and run the risk of falling or whether he was going to try to make his way back down from that particular ledge and probably certainly fall. What does he do? All of a sudden, he hears a voice from above him. It was a familiar voice. It was his dad. His dad had thought about, as the boys left on their ATVs, you know, at some point in time, I might ought to go out and check on them because he knew exactly the kind of boys that they were. And so he had seen his son as he was approaching, climbing up the side of the cliff, and he had gone around the back, and he was up top, and he called out to his son, and he said, I've got a rope I'm going to throw down to you. And I want you to tie that rope around your waist, and I will have hold of the rope, and I will not let it go. The rope was not long enough for him to let him back down to the ground. The rope was only long enough for him to continue up the side of the cliff. But his dad assured him that he had hold of the rope. Along that ascend up to the top where his dad was, he slipped, his feet slipped on the rocks, his hands slipped out of some of the holds as he went and tried to complete this journey, but the rope never let go. His dad had the rope. Happy ending, of course, he made it to the top, where he embraced his dad, safe and secure in the grips of his strong father's arms. As we begin looking at the end of this chapter today, as I read that story, I thought about this text. how we are secure in the hands of our Father. How God has our rope, God has hold of us, and no matter if we slip or no matter if our hand slides or no matter if our foot gives way, God is saying all the way, you're secure in the grip of my grace. The end of this chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, is heartwarming, it is smile-giving, it is uh, assurance-claiming. You can't read this chapter without smiling and actually just feeling warm inside from what Paul, what God gives us in these verses. So I want you to listen clearly to what Paul writes, what the Holy Spirit inspires for him to give to us because these are poetic words in our walk with Christ. We'll begin with verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for what you hold for us. Through this, your holy word, we pray this in your name. Amen. This chapter, and especially these verses 31 through 39, um, have been called this magnificent hymn, this hymn of security, this hymn that God gives us, this declaration of who we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you would think after verses 28, 29, and 30 that there was nothing else that Paul would be able to add. There would be nothing else that God would, be, would want to say as we looked last week about the, the end game. But... In verses 31 through 39, Paul continues as he writes this declaration of this security that we have in Jesus Christ, that there is a declaration of thanksgiving for the grace and the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And we, as his children, would live and rejoice, not only in this world, but in the world to come, in this wonderful eternity that God has planned for us as we join him. And so Paul begins this passage, and he says these things. What are these things that he is talking about? We have to go back to chapter 1-1 and through eight thirty, and Paul has given us this understanding of the atonement through Jesus Christ, the atonement that God has off- offered us. We are sinful, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are saved and sanctified in Jesus Christ. We are justified through his blood. And so this atonement, this doctrine of atonement, Paul has given us. But now he is ending this chapter. And I told you this was a pinnacle piece in the book of Romans last week. And Paul begins to... Talk about this security that we have. Knowing that there would be those that would listen to, those that would come alongside, false teachers that would share false doctrines. And he wanted everyone, then and now and everywhere in between, and those to come, that they would know that their salvation was secure in the Lord. And so, in this passage, Paul gives us, well, he gives a number of questions, but he gives us two overarching questions in this passage. One is about a who and one about a what. And so he looks at whether there is a person that can in some way take our salvation. Is there a circumstance that can take our salvation, he asks. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And so the first Question is who might threaten our security? Who is it that might threaten our security? And so Paul begins with this encompassing the, uh, um, uh, the, um, rhetorical question and he starts with, if God is for us, who is against us? And we have to understand here in the Greek the if is conditional. In other words, it signifies a fulfilling of the condition. It's not just a mere possibility. So if you were to read this in the, the Greek, it would be, because God is for us, who can be against us? Because God is for us. That if is not just a, like I said, a mere possibility. It is a full condition that God has, has given us salvation in his name. The implication here is that is there someone greater than God? Is there something or someone that is greater that could take our salvation from us? From the one that is both the giver and sustainer of our salvation? To that effect, Paul says, no. Who could take away This phrase that he gives us in verse 1, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who could take that away from us? And Paul says, no one. No one is greater than God. God is creator of all things, and no one is greater than God. I could share passage after passage from the Old and New Testament this morning to give the greatness of God. I mean, there's just a plethora of verses. But I want to give you just one example of who God is. In Isaiah, the prophet says this in the 40th chapter. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth who it is who sets in the circle of the earth? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth by numbers. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, no one, not one of them, is missing. This is the God, the creator God. And he has us in the grips of his grace. Paul, in this passage, does not suggest a particular person that would rob us or try to rob us of our salvation, but we know that there are those that might want to do that, or those that think they can do that, or we think there are those that can. And so I want to just give you three three options here of what people might think could rob them of their salvation. And we will start with individuals. You, can only ha- you only have to go back to the, the, the Jewish sect, the, the Sanhedrin, and, and see that they did not believe that any Christians were going to heaven, were a part of God, were anything other than uh, apostate, heretical uh, in their thoughts, because they did not adhere to their doctrines, their guidelines, the things that they, they had, the things that they had put in place that they wanted in place. And so, their doctrines, those that deviated from the Mosaic Law, they believed were not part of God's elect, God's people. From the Book of Acts and Galatians, we see where Paul in Galatians answers the question of circumcision. In the book of Acts, we see where where when Paul was um, fair, bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, that he warned them to be on guard. That there were going to be those who would come and try to, um, to be savage wolves, as he would put, that would not spare the flock. In Acts 20, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves, for all of the flock among you, which is the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd of the church of God, and he has purchased you with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you. They will not spare the flock. And from you, from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples from the church, from them. And Paul is not in any way saying that you can lose your salvation. What Paul is saying here in this text as he's addressing the elders of Ephesus, he is saying, when those that are false teachers, when there are those that come to you and say, you need to do this or you need to do that, then you need to be aware that they can hinder your walk. They can hinder your faith. They can bring doubts into your life. Beware of these false teachers that may come along. But listen to me, church. There is no person, there is no group of persons There is no ecclesiastical person or anyone else that can take your salvation from you. No one. No one. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure in him. He has you in the grip of his grace. And there is no small part or any part of that that can be taken from you. What about Satan? Well, we think, I think we think often that Satan is just almost next to God in power. He has this supernatural power. He tempts us. Can Satan take our salvation from us? And Paul says emphatically no. We look at just Job as the example. And all the way through Job's testing, God calls Job his faithful servant. This is my servant, God says to Satan. And though Job's faith was tested, it was tried. All of Satan's ploy, Job stayed faithful. His salvation was secure. His salvation was intact. There was nothing that Satan could do to rob Job of his salvation in the Lord. Every believer is protected by divine power. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have that Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit that dwells in us, and we have divine protection. Our salvation is secure. Paul uses this question in this text. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Satan will continually try to bring charges against us, but the blood of Jesus Christ says, Mm-mm. none of those charges are valid. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I am the one who justifies. I am the one who counts you righteous, God says. And there is nothing Satan or anyone else can do that can rob you from me. We have been declared eternally guiltless in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are no longer condemned because God is the only one that can do that. God conceived the law, God revealed the law, God interprets the law, He applies the law, and it is God who sent His Son as a sacrifice. take the law, all the demands of the law, so that it would be met in Jesus. There was no other way. And so in Jesus Christ, our righteousness is fulfilled as God sees us righteous before him. We are in the grip of the grace of God some may think um, would god take our salvation from us there are some denominations there are some people that would tell you god will take your salvation from you unless you are constantly repenting in other words Every time you sin, you have to repent, confess and repent. And if you don't, then if you die at that moment, you're going to hell. Man, is that a way to live? I mean, that every single moment of every single day that you are awake, that you have to worry about whether you said something wrong or did something wrong, and all of a sudden God's going to jerk that salvation away from you? Does that make sense? That the one that sent his son from heaven to die for you, that his blood was shed for you so that you were called in his name, that he would take that from you? Does he treat his enemies more and better than he does his own family? No. Paul says we're secure in Christ. If God loved us while we were sinners, wretched sinners... And gave his son for us. Do you think he would turn his back on us? And say, no, I think I'm going to take that back from you. God has us in his hand. God has us secure. And God is not as we come to faith in him, if we are truly in the family of God, we are going to remain in the family of God until we see him face to face. Even Paul in this text says, he was raised and is seated at, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he intercedes on our behalf. This is who our Savior is. He has us in His hands. We are in the secure grip of Christ's grace. No one, no one will threaten our security in Jesus Christ. Paul in verses 35 through 37 asks another overarching question and that is what might threaten our security? Now you might say, well, it says who can separate us, but in the Greek, this also can mean what. And so Paul has established that it's impossible for any person to take our salvation from us, and now he asks that similar question, is it possible for a circumstance to rob us of our salvation? The apostle says that too is impossible. Now, it can be, and we know that as we walk with Christ, that there's going to be times of where it's hard. We're going to face things that are unpleasant. There are going be, there's going to be circumstances that really test our faith in who we are and causes us to persevere and even endure some of the things that this world gives us. And so Paul would say there is nothing though, there's nothing, no circumstance that would be able to pull us away from Christ if we are truly belong to Christ. I want you to take note in in this particular, this this verse, And, and, and he says the love of Christ. What does that mean when he says the love of Christ? Does it refer to the believer's love for Christ or for Christ's love for us? It's the latter. It's Christ's love for us. No person can love Christ without experiencing his redeeming power and love and grace in their life. How do we know? 1 John 4.19 says, We love because God first loved us. And so in the context here of Paul talking about the security of our salvation, and when he brings up the love of Christ, he is referring to the salvation that we have in Christ. Paul is therefore asking rhetorically this, if there's any circumstance that is powerful enough To cause any true believer to turn against Christ, that would cause Christ to turn his back on us. And so here we see the power and the permanency of Christ's love for us, that as we are purchased, bought with the blood of Christ, that we are secure in him, and that power cannot be broken. In John 13, 1, John says this, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having love for his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the question here often is raised whether John means the end of Christ or the end of of the believers life and we know the answer to that in 1st John 4 verse 9 and 10 and then verse 17 John who just had written these words we read these words in his first epistle and he says by this love of God that was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him in this love not that we love god but that he loved us he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins by this this love is perfected in us that's our salvation that by the love of christ the love of christ is perfected in us our salvation and here's what john says that we may have the confidence in the days of judgment Because as he is, we also are. As he is, we also are in this world. And so salvation is secure. God has perfected in the love of Christ in us that our salvation is secure. And we have the divine power through the Holy Spirit that our salvation binds eternally forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives a list here. I'm, al- I'm always amazed at how God uses numbers. And, um, and so when there's a list given, I'll look at, the, uh, at how many pieces there are because we know that seven's a perfect number in God's economy. And here, Paul gives us a list of seven things Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. And he says, are these things going to be able to rob your salvation? Is this going to be able, the, per, the, the things that will take away your salvation, are these circumstances in any way going to be able to rob you of your salvation in Christ Jesus the Lord? And again, emphatically, is no. You say, well, I don't face these things. We face most of these things. When you think about tribulation, you could mark in, pencil in, the word sickness, disease, the things that this world throws at us that we we have to deal with all the time. Distress. Mental anxiety, I think some of us have certainly experienced that over our life. Persecution, you say, well, maybe I haven't been persecuted for my faith yet. If you haven't, you probably will. Or you aren't living your faith out around some people that will challenge you with that. And in today's economy, that is easy to face. Famine. Uh, Most of us are eating well, I think, but I will tell you that hardships, famine can come from the hardships of persecution. In other words, there can be those that try to withdraw from you, experience it in the workplace. And I'm going to give you an example, a real quick example. Um, I was talking with Dave Logan, and we were talking about Holy Week. And Dave says... um, I'm going to be gone Holy Week. I said, that's okay. We won't do Wednesday night. We'll do Monday Thursday. And he said, here's why. Uh, the company calls and says, do you have anything uh, this particular week? And Dave says, it's Holy Week. And the guy on the other end of the phone says, what? Yeah, Holy Week. What's that? Holy Week. It's, it's a Christian, yeah, it's, a, it's, a big day. it's a big week in the Christian life well, I'm sure you can come to California and, you know, we're moving forward. So Dave turns to me as we're talking. He said, it's interesting how, you know, uh, so often some of the other um, religion holidays are certainly things are pushed away for those. But for the Christian holiday, eh, come on. We're going to spend all week, you know, in business in California. Um, So famine, yes, it can come from persecution. Nakedness, you are often vulnerable and unprotected. You are laid bare often in this world. And you may not be naked without clothes, but you find yourself vulnerable at times as a Christian walking with Christ. What about peril? Those are the dangers that we face. It can be betrayal, mistreatment that happens to us. And then, of course, the sword Paul mentions here. Now, often we will think of the sword and we'll go to Ephesians and we'll think of the sword of the Spirit being the Scripture, but this is not what Paul means here. When Paul speaks of the sword here, he's talking about death. Will death be able to separate you from the salvation that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And no. It will not. Paul says, in all things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. And there we see that love again. That through him who saved us, through him who has brought us into the fold, for him who, le- who died and was raised to new life so that we would have life in him. We know there is a cost to discipleship. We know there's a cost to following Jesus, but we must never forget that we are secure in the grace of God. If there are those that say that they are a Christian, and they are persistently living in sin, and they are persistently turning their back on God, And if they are despairing and uh, sinning against God's word, the likelihood is they never had salvation to begin with. Such people did not lose their salvation. They didn't have salvation. How do we know that there are such people among the church, the body of Christ? How do we know that? Because God tells us. In 1 John 2, 19, John says, They went out from us, which means that they were already among them. They were a part of them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they were never of us to start with. And so within the body of Christ, there are those that profess to be Christian, profess to walk with Christ, but they have never received salvation, have never been secure in the salvation, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Those who have given, surrendered their life, and made Jesus Lord over their life, they are secure in the grip of God's hand in the grip of his grace. Paul closes out this beautiful chapter with a summary of the security in verses 38 and 39. He he is reminding us here in these verses. He is actually just reinforcing and saying, I'm convinced. How and why is he convinced? It's not just that the Lord has given him the revelation to write the words, but he has experienced this firsthand. He knows what he has been through. He knows where he has been, what he has faced. He knows what God has given him in these first eight chapters here that he has written now in this wonderful book. And he gives us this testimony and says, I'm convinced that there's nothing. There's no height, no depth. There is nothing. There is nothing in life. No principle, no present, no things to come, no powers, no height, depth. And then he uses this phrase, nor any other created thing. And that's important for us to hear. Because as I mentioned before, the only Non-created thing is the triune God. Everything else in all of creation, everything else in the universe, everything else there ever has been or ever will be is created. And Paul says, God gives us, there is nothing, there is no created thing that can ever separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And every one of you that are believers should say amen. Nothing. Nothing in the past, nothing in the future, nothing in the present. For all eternity, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. In 17th century London... Criminals were brought before a judge and they would take their thumbs and they would um, brand their thumbs with a symbol. And so if someone was brought back before the the judge, from that point on after the branding, he would have everyone raise their, their right hand because it was the right thumb that had the brand. And so if there was not a brand there, the leniency was was there. But if that brand was there, the judge knew that he was a repeat offender and would throw the book at them. After the branding stopped, they considered it cruel and unruly punishment. And so what they did in England was they continued to use the right hand in a trial or in front of a judge to swear that you were speaking the truth and that carried over into the United States. Um, We began to use left hand on the Bible, right hand up to swear that we were telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What is interesting when you think about the right hand, throughout Scripture God's right hand shows power and authority. Sixty times in the Bible. And we've already read them three times in our confession piece. I don't know if you noticed that. But hand was mentioned three times in Psalm 39. Sixty times in the scripture it's mentioned that God's hand has power give you just a couple of addresses. Isaiah 50, verse 2, Habakkuk 3, 4, talks about the power of God's hand, his right hand. In Matthew 20, 21, in 22, 20, and in 26, 64, Matthew talks about the authority of God's hand. In John 10, Jesus tells the religious leaders that those that God has given him, that no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. And so we see over and over again the power and authority of God's hand. Even in this passage, Paul says again, He who is seated at the right hand of God intercedes on our behalf. And so, folks, if you belong, if you belong to Jesus, no power in heaven or on earth can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The teenager that day, certainly felt the power of a father that would hold a rope to keep him from falling off the side of the cliff, maybe to his death. Even though as he made his journey on up the cliff, he slipped, but he was secure. He was failing at times, but yet he was secure. And he reached the Father's embrace and his love. And that's the way our Father is. Our Heavenly Father has hold of us with his hand. And that grip is never going to be released or letting go. It's going to be secure. Because he has poured out the blood of his Son in the grace and mercy. So that we are his. Today and forever. For all eternity, we are his. Thanks be to God for the love of Christ that he has poured into us. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We pray, Father, that we would never, ever doubt the security of our salvation. Father, that we would um, share with others the good news of the gospel, that as you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that your salvation is secure that there is nothing in all of creation that would be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Father, this morning, we thank you for the hymn that ends this chapter 8 that reminds us of your love for us and that you have us in the grip of your hand for all time. Thank you, Father,